Good day, my friends, and thank you for joining me again in another podcast. And I was looking, this is the 17th one now that we've done. And when I started out doing this, I had mentioned that it was I was following the chapters of the book that I had written that we call The Religious Lie, hence the why we're calling this podcast The Religious Lie. And when I wrote the book, and it took, you know, writing, rewriting, writing, rewriting, and you always wonder if you're ever going to get the chance to use it. And I did try to get it published, but that didn't work out. So for those of you who listen, I am so grateful because it means that all the years of doing this, at least someone hopefully gets something out of it. And so that's a beautiful thing. But anyway, we've been following along and we're with the interview that Jesus did with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And of course, Jesus goes into Samaria when no one would go in there because the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. And he is coming not only to set this woman free, but she's going to take his message back to the Samaritan people and really change the course of history for those folks. And so continuing along with the conversation, he's Jesus has uh, broken the ice with her and he's been talking to her one-on-one about the gift that God wants to give out. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And when I was preparing this podcast, those three words that Jesus told her, if you knew, excuse me, it was almost like the Lord stopped me there and said, isn't that so true then? And isn't it so true now that if people knew who I really am, and he's talking to the Samaritan woman, what did she know? Well, in the conversation, we're seeing that she knew all about religion. She knew all about prejudice. And the relationships, many relationships she's had, she knew all about divorce and remarriage. She knew about uh, familiar with betrayal, unfaithfulness. And she knows about rejection, unacceptance, shame. She knows all about that and all about her sin and its destructive power in her life. But what does she know about a way out? And that's what Jesus is coming to give her because what does she really know about God? What does she need to know about Jesus, the Son of God, who is the personification of God? That's what will be the difference maker in her life and in every life today. It's the same thing. If you knew who Jesus really is. It's not about knowing her belief system, her doctrines, her denomination, not where she worships or her religious practices, customs or traditions. Do you know who Jesus really is? His love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his forgiving and forbearing way, his righteousness in every aspect of life, his redemptive healing and restoring power, his friendship, his compassion, his ability to chastise you and correct you at the same time with such tender care that you feel chastised and loved all at once. Only Jesus can do that. He's too good to be true. And in fact, yet He is true. When she knows him, and when people today know him for who he really is, it's a life changer. It's the love, the rest, and peace in our souls, liberty and joy in our life that we've always wanted. And no matter how difficult it may get in your life, nothing can ever take it away from you.
So I guess the question for us today, the question Jesus is posing to her, do we really know who Jesus is? And as a follow-up to that, are we presenting Jesus to others for who he really is? Do our lives reflect the character of Jesus that would make him incredibly appealing to all the woman-at-the-well types of people that are prevalent in our society today? And make no mistake, they're out there. And if we're not encountering them, we must be living in some bubble world because they're definitely there. So as Jesus is talking to her, it reminded me, the way he's dealing with her, reminded me of a scripture that it was Paul writing to Timothy. Paul was, uh, Timothy was kind of Paul's protege. He's a younger man. And Paul writes a letter directed to him that we call Second Timothy. And in the course of that, there's scriptures that he said to Timothy. He says, I say to you, don't get involved in foolish arguments which only upset people and make them angry. He said, God's people must not be quarrelsome. They're supposed to be gentle, patient. You want to be teaching those who are wrong. Be humble when you're trying to teach those who are mixed up concerning the truth. For if you talk to them meekly and courteously, then they're much more likely with God's help to turn away from their wrong ideas and believe what's true. Then they will come to their senses and escape from Satan's trap of slavery to sin, which he uses to catch them whenever he likes. And then they can begin to do the will of God. Boy, that is some incredible uh, instruction for us today in the world, because I don't know that we're doing that. Today, everybody is quarrelsome. Everybody is angry. And there's not a lot of patience and humility. It's just everybody trying to prove their point to everyone. And what he's writing to Timothy here, he said, that is not a way where you present Jesus to people. If you present Jesus to people that way, they're going to be turned off. You walk away thinking you want an argument when that's not even what you were called to do. You will go there to present Jesus so that other person could be set free. And he tells him, you do that gentle. In other words, kind and tenderhearted, patient. You're not easily annoyed by the others, and you do, in fact, listen to them. Humble, you don't feel superior. I'm right, you're wrong. You see them as, as, as a sinner in need of a savior, just like you were. You're courteous, that means you're respectful. You don't have to agree with everyone, but you can show respect. That's the way that Jesus dealt with this woman at the well. And it's the way he calls us to deal with others. Don't, don't get me wrong. Jesus spoke out against injustice and inequality. And sometimes he railed on the religious leaders of the day because he knew they had no heart to even entertain what he was saying. I'm talking about the woman at the well types in the world that are held captive, as that scripture said, by Satan. They're held captive and they're looking to be set free and God wants to use us in the process of directing them to Jesus and the way we do that is they see Jesus in us. Patient, humble. Jesus was acting like he genuinely cared about this woman and he was inviting her to get free from her captivity. And as I said, it's a pattern we need to follow. All society in every aspect and area, religion, government, uh, socioeconomic world, my goodness gracious, 
We've got to stop all the division and all the arguing. Especially so, as I'm saying, as God's people, because we're here to bring the good news gospel message of Jesus to others. It's not about taking sides. We want to listen and respect others' positions. Okay. And I love that part where he said there are some people that are held captive by the enemy at his will. There are people that, folks, they just don't know the truth. They have frankly never heard the truth. Like this woman at the well, they know a lot about religion. They know they've looked around and seen all the uh, different religious denominations. But they don't know who Jesus really is. So when we're reaching out to others, let's not just present our beliefs, our doctrines, our church denomination, uh, our, even sometimes our scripted uh, dialogue with people. I'm going to lead you into praying the sinner's prayer, and I have nothing against that. But that's not our goal in life. I'm going to talk to lead him into the sinner's prayer. No, you're talking to that person because you want the Holy Spirit to work right through you to touch that other person's heart. And the Holy Spirit's the one that's going to draw him to Jesus because that's not your job. Your job is to present Jesus for who he really is. And you know what? When we listen to people, very often we hear the cry of their hearts. And then we get to make the introduction. You're introducing them to a person, a person who cares for them. And you're telling them about what, let me introduce you to a person that, that's done this in my life. Look what he's done in my life and he can do the same for you. He can redeem you, set you free, give you abundant life. So Jesus is asking this woman, he said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me to give you a drink. But he says, I'll give you a drink of living water. Now, the living water that Christ is talking about here is something that the woman, knowing the Samaritans, knew the scriptures, and she would know that he was talking about what the prophets, because they had used living water, streams of living water was a type, uh, it was symbolic of God's blessing and, and life that he would give to people. The prophet Jeremiah one time, when the people were going astray and they turned against God, he uses the analogy of living water. He said, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And he said, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. Cisterns were like the systems, underground systems that they set up to hold the water. And he said, you guys are on your own now. You've rejected me. And all you're doing with your ways is trying to build your own cisterns to hold water. And he says, all you're doing is losing it because you won't look to me first. But with this woman, Jesus is making an amazing addition to that scriptural reference. He's telling this woman, I'm the authorized giver of living water. Astoundingly, he's equating himself with the one true God. No one had ever done that. Jesus assures her that asking for and receiving the gift of life from God is directly related to knowing Jesus as the giver of that life. And boy, that is the difference maker. That's where the line is drawn in the sand in all society. Jesus, the Son of God. If we knew him, what do we believe about him? Because he's telling this woman, I am, my God, my Father has sent me to be the giver of life. This living water that I'm offering you flows through me. 
Knowing him is synonymous with knowing the Father. Boy, that, that claim that Jesus made was totally rejected by the Jewish leaders. They called it blasphemy, and it cost Jesus his life. To us who are believers, we embrace it as the truth that sets mankind free. Jesus is letting her know that eternal life, springs of living water, are not found in any religious doctrine, dogma, or creed. It is realized only through a personal, intimate relationship with the soul and only giver of life, Jesus, the Son of God. And again, God the Father has ordained it to be that way. Now the woman hears him say this. And you can see her as she's going along in the conversation. She's getting more and more curious. And so she keeps the conversation going. Now she's going to challenge Jesus' claim that he just made of greatness. She says to him, sir, you have absolutely nothing to draw the water from the well that's right here. The well's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? And then she says to him, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did all his sons and his livestock. See, she was taken aback by Jesus' claim, but she's intrigued with the authority that's coming from him, and she's hanging now on every word. She might not understand totally his message right now, but she's captivated by the power of his presence. And so what she does in the conversation, she reaches up to the top of the Samaritan religious leadership ladder, Jacob. And the woman questions Jesus' prominence over him. See, this is where Jesus is going to come in and he's going to show this woman, ma'am, Jacob was used in his time frame, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of them. But they all just were pointing to me and waiting for me to come on the scene. And he says to the woman, he answers her, he says, everybody drinks this water from Jacob's well. He says, they're going to be thirsty again. And what he's let her to knowing right then and there is everything you've believed about your religious system in the past. It was there for a time came. God ordained it. It was a prelude to me. But it will never satisfy your thirst. It will leave you empty and dry in the end. But whoever drinks from the water I give them, he will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring inside them, welling up to eternal life. What an amazing claim to make again, that I am the giver of eternal life. You know, I, when I, again, when I was preparing this, I thought of the fact that we're 2,000 years later, past the time that Christ was making these claims, and when he's coming on the scene to minister to people, it's at a time frame where there hasn't been any prophet in Israel in like 400 years. And John the Baptist precedes Christ and the people are coming out to get baptized because John's letting them know the time is coming where our Messiah is coming. Now, people in Israel were expecting, based on what the prophets had said, that a Messiah would come one day. But who were they looking for? Again, the question is, did they know if they knew who Jesus really was? Because, again, we are looking 2,000 years later, and we say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. He's equating himself with God. He's the forgiver of sins. He'll rise from the dead. They knew none of that. The people at the time that Jesus came would never, ever think that the Messiah would ever be divine, that he would be the Son of God. They were looking for another earthly king in the line of David. 
and looking for him to be a king like David and that he was going to reestablish the physical kingdom of Israel. They knew nothing about a spiritual kingdom. And it wasn't until the Apostle Paul got redeemed that he's taking all of this and he's taking it from the earthly to the heavenly, from the natural to the supernatural, because all they were looking for was another man to raise up a natural kingdom. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he's presenting the kingdom of God. This is something brand new. And again, they were not expecting the Messiah to be anybody divine. One time Jesus has his apostles with him. And he asked them a question. He said, who do men say that I am? In other words, all these people that we're going out were, you know, the sick are being set free, demons are being cast out, I'm feeding people. All these people that are seeing the miracle working power of God, they're seeing the kingdom of God in operation. Who are they saying that I am? And so the apostles said, well, some say you're John the Baptist all over again. Oh, okay, what else? Well, some say you might be Elijah or really one of the other prophets. Okay, but then Jesus turns to them and says, okay, that's what they're saying, but who do you say that I am? If you knew, again, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who always seems to be the spokesman for all of them, and for all I know, who knows, maybe they had discussed this among themselves, but Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, meaning the anointed one, the Messiah, but then he makes, he says another statement that no one had ever made in history up to that point. He said, you're the Christ, but you're the son of the living God. Peter is saying, Jesus, you're not just another man. God is your father. It's the first time in history anybody had ever, and other people did not understand that. They never, they never understood that all of Jesus's life. But Peter's the first one. He says, no, you're not any ordinary man. And that was going to be the difference maker in society. And Jesus turns to Peter. He said, you know what, Peter? You didn't get that from just natural understanding. He said, my father just gave that to you. He has given you that understanding that I am the son of God. And these statements that he's making here to the woman at the well and other statements he make, I'm making that with the authority of God. He even said later, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. No one could do that unless they were the Son of God and divine. And of course, again, that cost him his life. So again, what I guess I'm saying here over and over is, if people really knew who Jesus is and how much he loves them and cares for them, Jesus is letting this woman at the well know, I supersede Jacob and everybody else in status. I have the creative power that only God could claim. I'm not just offering a drink of water, I'm telling you I'll give you an unending supply from an everlasting spring. <laughs> not your average aquifer. This is more than just a thirst quencher for the body. See, that's what the people were looking for, for the Messiah, do something to change our natural life. And Jesus is letting them know this. He's letting this tired, parched woman know that her thirst is more spiritual than natural. And that's what the, the, the thirst of people today is. 
What they're really looking for is the spiritual, not the natural. And my goodness gracious, sometimes they're looking in all the long, wrong places. I, I've never seen a time frame in our history where people are looking to aliens, aliens of all things. And believe me, I don't know that they're aliens that they're looking to and invoking and calling out to. And all of a sudden, this great emphasis. Why? Because people are looking for the spiritual. They're empty and dry inside. And the Jesus that's sometimes been presented to them is not the real Jesus. And so they're still empty and dry. And at the same time, only he can satisfy that thirst. See, as Jesus tried to do with Nicodemus before this woman, he's trying to change her perspective from the natural to the supernatural. He's trying to take her beyond her earthly existence to an eternal destiny. Folks, you and I have eternal life. Wrap your mind around that. Eternal life? On your worst day, just focus on that and say, you know what? This is all only dress rehearsal anyway. The water of Jacob's well can only quench your thirsty flesh. The presence and truth of Jesus, he will quicken and strengthen your spirit eternally. Of course, we need natural water. What Jesus is telling this woman at the well is the spiritual water is to be more prized than the natural. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of the necessity of priorities being an order in life. He told them, don't worry about what people are saying. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? He said, all the unbelievers run after those things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things. They're going to be added to you anyway, because that's who I am. He said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. He says, tomorrow's got enough worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God, we spend so much time in life. We either looking back or looking down the road and we miss what's going on today. And I've said before, if you're looking, one eye's looking back and the other eye's looking forward, you can't see straight today. Jesus isn't suggesting there what he just said, that food, shelter, and clothing are unimportant. He often fed the people and healed the hungry and the wounded. His point was to clarify what should be the top place in our life. What should be top of our priority list? Our perspective in life is to be driven by our desire for Jesus and his righteous kingdom to reign in our everyday life. We're not to seek first what's going to satisfy our flesh and then leave our souls thirsty and dry. And I understand, man, all of us, me, you, we all still contend with a sinful nature. And so it's proven difficult for us to prioritize our needs sometimes, especially in a world we're living in, where everything of your flesh is what's marketed. I mean, gee whiz, we're not expecting the world is going to speak to us about eternal life. They're going to try to keep our total focus on everything that benefits them and, and brings more profit to them. So the natural tendency of us is to provide for our body more than our soul, to have the temporary take precedence over the eternal, to have the concerns of this world consume our mind. 
was talking to somebody yesterday and we were discussing the things that are going on and it's just a matter of see it for what it is and realize we're not a part of that kingdom. Of course, there's going to be some cares and concern, our children, our grandchildren, but the best we can do for that is show them who Jesus really is. Let them see the kingdoms of this world for what they are and then show them, display to them, live out the kingdom of God that gives eternal life. I'm getting way too preachy, aren't I? Oh, Jesus' message is so markedly different from what the marketing in this world. In his message, the soul and the spirit take precedence over the mind and the body. His is a kingdom that reigns within before it's realized without. It's a life where character, honesty, integrity, sincerity are valued more than any fleeting fame and fortune. He's got a world where society's least are considered the greatest and the supposed greatest are really the least. If we could wrap our brain around that. A place where people are filled with the joy of knowing Jesus and where his grace, love and compassion surpass the superficial materialism that leaves us all unfulfilled anyway. I don't know of one person that's really got fulfilled with all the earthly gain and prosperity they got. Jesus is telling this woman at the well, Jacob's well will only satisfy the thirst for the same old life that's left you empty and dry. She would have to leave life as she has known it, drink from Jesus' eternal spring, and find the solution for her thirsty soul. You know, later on in the story, she's going to leave her pot right there that she came to fill and she's going to run to tell the people about Jesus. Why? Because she was forsaking what she came for. And forsaking all to follow Jesus has always been the heart of Jesus' message, folks. When you, when you can get in life, where you can, when you're that in love in life, where you can lay down your life for another and, and you can forsake all for another person, then you're really starting to live. And I know it's a challenge in the world we live in, but man, when you fall in love that way where you're willing to lay down your life and forsake all, that's the beginning of a great journey. I don't know how long it'll last, but man, it'll put a lump in your throat and a quick in your step. It's what real living is all about. Jesus was... Uh, one time talking, he and, he and his disciples went to a, a village and he talks about the cost. As they were walking along a road, a man said to him, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, you know what? Foxes have dens and birds have nests and the son of man has no place to lay his head. You see what he's telling him there? Uh, pal, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to leave life as you've known it. And he replied, well, another man came and he said, Jesus said to him, follow me. Well, the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, when he's saying first go bury my father, of course, burying his father was being important. No, he's talking about there might have been an inheritance from his father and he wants to get all his ducks in a row and everything lined up before he follows Jesus. So Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You go play in the kingdom of God. He's using hyperbole here to speak about following him and forsaking all. 
Another guy comes to him and said, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But the guy was what? I got to go back first and get everything squared away with my family. And Jesus, I think, kind of knew, like, uh, I don't think that's going to work, pal, because I think when you go back there, you ain't coming back. All three men in that thing expressed a willingness to follow. Yet they had legitimate concern for home, family, and livelihood. And Jesus isn't disputing their duty as men. He's challenging them to trust him. I am the one that can care for your household, and I am the only one that can do everything you want me to do. I see the needs every one of you are expressing, and I will meet those needs if you're willing, if you're at least willing to forsake all and follow me. And guys, I think that's the first thing is just, just articulate it to Jesus, because I know it's a challenge. It's a challenge with me, you, you know, we, the people, you're listening to me, I'm speaking, we all have faith in God. Yes, we do. But can we trust him for every circumstance and situation in our life? That's where the challenge, at least it's a challenge to me. And I got to think it's the same for you. Because sometimes it isn't easy. I was walking with the Lord the other day. I was taking a walk and I'm always talking to him. And Kathy gets upset with me because my mouth, I'm in public and my mouth's going a mile a minute all the time. And she says, people think you're crazy. And I said, no, I'm in a good place. I'm talking to Jesus. Everything will be okay. I did it at the gym one day. few weeks ago, I'm on the treadmill and I'm going a mile a minute talking to the Lord. And this friend of mine comes up beside of me. I didn't even know he was there. And he looked at me like, wow, this guy's, you're losing it. But anyway, I was talking to Jesus the other day. And all of a sudden, it's like the spirit of God spoke to me. He said, in America, you guys want a Christianity without a cost. And you know, if he's saying that to me, he's saying it to me for a reason. I mean, it's, it's, I guess what I'm saying is that sometimes we look for a Christianity that's going to make everything perfect in the natural life I'm talking about. And Jesus told us in the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. And there is sometimes a cost to be a Christian, Because everybody's not going to agree with you. And as I just read from Paul talking to Timothy, it doesn't mean you strike back at them. And sometimes that's difficult. You're going to go through trials and tribulations that actually test your faith. But I've always said trust puts faith to work. It's a challenge, but I think that Jesus, by his spirit, is always with us. He's there. He knew these people that he was calling. He knew their hearts. He wants to bring us along through the challenges of life to say, watch me bring you to the other side. And when I bring you to the other side of what you're going through, you'll be stronger than you were when we started because I understand your frame. I understand every weakness you have. I understand where you're living. I understand the country you're living in. I understand the message that's going out in the country you're living. But if you're willing to forsake all to follow me, I'll bring you to the other side. I'll carry you if I have to, but we'll get there. All I'm looking for, give me a willing heart. Man, I know. I've said it again. I'll say it again. It's easier said sometimes than done. Sometimes I've struggled with the test. 
I have unwavering faith in the fact that Jesus loves me and redeemed me, yet I have uneven trust in the everyday situations that challenge me. I think when faced with the complexities and adversity of life, there's a tendency of all of us to look first to our own abilities to control and solve the situation. And I think sometimes that's our natural man reaction. We become so conditioned to believe it's our responsibility to fix everything that we fail to look to Jesus first for his counsel. I always think of the story of the apostles one time, they were, and they were fishermen. Jesus had sent them off and told them, go to the other side of the lake. So they get in the boat, and a horrific storm comes up. I'm sorry, at this particular time, Jesus was with them. He was asleep in the bow of the boat. In a storm. Jesus was sleeping in the storm. I guess I haven't done too much sleeping during the storms, but Jesus was asleep and he knew that the apostles weren't going to be. He knew what the, they were fishermen and what they were trying to do was bail out the water. How, how When you get in difficult circumstances and situations in life, don't we sit there trying to bail ourselves out? And we're bailing and bailing and bailing. And you know what? All the time you're bailing, the water's still coming in on the other end. Because the solution isn't to try to bail yourself out. So what did they do? The apostles, they finally, as a last resort, they woke up Jesus. Maybe that could have been the first thing they did. But no, see, the tendency of us is we're going to try, 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 try to solve every situation. And then when we can't do it, we throw our hands up and say, where are you, Jesus? Where is he? He's sleeping right there in the bottom of the boat. And then they had the audacity to ask him, Lord, don't you care? And I suppose we've said that a time or two to the Lord, haven't we, when we get in tough situations? Aren't you seeing what's going on? Don't you care? Yes, I'm right there with you. And I'll take you to the other side. <clears throat> we've all been through the same scenario. Fortunately, we have a loving Father who knows our frame. And grace is extended to us, despite our stubbornness sometimes, to look to ourselves before we look to him. <clears throat> Making a confession, I would have to say, I hate what I can't control. And I think that's probably true of a lot of people. Why do I hate what I can't control? Because it makes me look foolish and inadequate. And so what do I try to do The solution? Well, control more and more. I mean, just maybe the false pride, insecurity, and stuff that's inside of me is the real issue Jesus wants to expose. Not so he can judge me, so he can heal me. Whatever he reveals, he wants to heal and teach me to trust him. I guess the fact that I've been on a lifelong merry-go-round is indicative of my being a slow learner. But I am getting there. One step at a time, one day at a time. Every day you get up, yes to you, Jesus, today. You know, I've often recited Solomon's proverb concerning I need to trust. He says, trust in the Lord with all thy heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he'll direct your paths straight. Now, I admire that counsel, but I struggle with the concept. 
leaning not to my own understanding runs against the grade of my natural instincts. I am an analyzer, a rationalizer, a strategizer, and I want to tough it out until the trial ends. Why? Because from childhood, we've been pretty much instructed to follow that formula. God only helps those who help themselves. By the way, that's not scripture. God helps those who know they can't help themselves. We have to humble ourselves and come to God. Because we don't have the power to help ourselves. So what we've been taught, well, at least in my generation, what I was taught from the time I was kid, wasn't the truth. Sounded good. <clears throat> See, when we don't sit there and try to control everything and tough it out, It's often considered by society unacceptable. What's the matter with you? You're a wimp. And we're almost taught like, and to believe like looking to God first is some kind of an irresponsible, immature act of a weakling looking for a bailout. Well, geez, I don't know. If I was, if I was in a boat and I was in a storm and I was about to drown and Jesus was sleeping right there, I mean, I just might want to wake him up. It's the first thing. Because we've already seen he has the power to walk on water. <clears throat> Again, I hate what I can't control. Why? Because I fear what I can't control. We don't fear the things we can't control, folks. We fear the things we can't control. And what's fear? Lack of trust. Trusting God's perfect love through every adversity is going to be our only release from the bondage of fear that results in our lack of trust. And what am I so afraid of when I can't look to him first and try to... Con am I afraid of failure? Every mighty man of God was mocked by failure at some point in their lives. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, <clears throat> they all made mammoth mistakes. God never rejected them. He forgave them, restored them. Why? Because he considered their heart over their actions. Thank God we serve a God like that. What else do I fear? Inadequacy? Well, that's the actual starting point of our journey with Jesus. We're all inadequate, unworthy, and incapable on our own. Newsflash. We're all inadequate, unworthy, and incapable on our own. That's why we come to Jesus in the first place. Okay, do I dread the shame of looking bad before others? Well, humility is the very crux of Christianity. If it takes some failure to bring that reality to light, then it's a positive, not a negative experience. Well, maybe I've got anxiety over a loss of some position or some possession. Well, if that were the case, then failure would be an instrument of God to get my priorities back in order. I think sometimes we all need to fall on our assets in order to ascend to the true riches that we have in Christ. Well, I'm afraid of making a bad decision. The only one who has never made a bad decision is someone who has refused to make a decision. We're all sheep. We're not the brightest bulbs in the tree. We make stupid decisions that often require a bailout by our great shepherd, who's only happy to do it because he knows how dumb we are. When I can face that fact, the freer I am. King David was a man who knew a thing about rejection and adversity in his life. 
being released from fear in order to trust implicitly in God was a constant theme. If you read his Psalms, David's Psalms, it's a constant theme. He wrote one psalm we call Psalm 37. It should be an anthem for all of us who miss the mark of loving trust due to the influence of fear. I can't recite it all here. It'd be too long, but let me just read you a few verses. Do not long. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble... He won't fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. David wrote that later in life. He was reflecting on the experiences that defined him as a man of God and a leader of the nation. All of us have God-ordained experiences in life that are designed to release us from fear and replace it with the love of God. And too often we try to shelter ourselves from the trials that are intended for our ultimate freedom. David, I just talked about he was on the run for years. He was fleeing from a jealous King Saul who was looking to secure his kingship and his legacy. And when David had it in his hands to end the exile and kill Saul, he took a step back from the easy route and he trusted in the Lord. Although he had to wait for God's timing, David was rewarded. He received everything Saul tried to keep from him. That's who our God is. Sometimes to avoid the hard lessons of life, it only serves to deprive us of the intimacy that we could have with God, our heart's desire. And we try to protect ourselves from some of the things that could bring that about. David was called a man after God's own heart. Not so much because of his greatness as a leader, but the loving trust he displayed in his everyday life as God's servant. He learned to follow and trust God in the midst of his trials and tribulations. He was not a perfect man. He didn't pass every test, but he kept getting up, and I'm going to the next one. Until we learn to do so, we'll never experience the exhilarating liberation of loving trust. Now, why does it happen to us? Well, many people have had difficult experiences in their younger years. And that serves to define their future. Sometimes things have happened in people's lives that have so negatively impacted them that fear rises up and defines their life. And, it try, and fear will always get you to try to control every aspect of your life. And the result is an unending and exhausting effort to protect yourself and prevent any further harm. I don't want to feel that again. I want to protect myself. And when we live that way, love and trust take a back seat. And fear drives the bus. And then what happens? Life is lived in the rearview mirror. And when you live that way, you're waiting for the next accident to happen. All of us have had things that happen to us, folks. And I consider the trials of my younger years as mild compared to others. And I remember being 10 years old and, and standing next to my house and watching as they repossessed our car, foreclosed in our house, the change of schools that I hated. We moved from house to house living with relatives, living under the goodness and grace of various relatives. 
What happens when that happens? Shame, instability, and a sense of futility. And it, it, it like hung over our house like some dark cloud that just wasn't going to move on. And my mom and dad were good people who, like so many others, they struggled with unresolved issues that negatively affected some of their decisions. That's life. Doesn't mean they didn't love me. Of course they did, and I loved them. Growing up, I feared failure. I feared rejection. And I developed a, a kind of a depressing mindset that nothing really mattered. I watched my father work day and night and we lost everything. What does that tell you? That in the end, it's all a waste of time, that you're only going to suffer loss again. I had a lot of fear, a lot of immaturity, and a lot of irresponsibility as a teen with very little motivation. And most of the time, my heart was in the right place, but the rest of me wasn't following. And then God steps into the picture. He's, well, he was always there. And as the years unfold, I met two people. I met Kathy, and then I met Jesus, the real Jesus, for who he really is. In that order, I met them. And both of them, a dramatic change in my <laughs> Jesus taught me responsibility, accountability, and he brought me into maturity. And thank God he was patient. And like Jesus, Kathy taught me that she would never leave or forsake me. She would always love me and help me despite my issues. She exhibited patience and great grace. And so the journey took a turn for the better. Am I totally set free and healed of all my insecurities and idiosyncrasies? No, not really. There are times when my controlling ways rise up to rule. There are still stints where every little thing turns negative in a New York second, but it's not as often. I'm growing, I guess is what I'm saying. We're all growing. Do we ever fully uh, get there in this life? No, we don't. But we're supposed to be, and we should be growing, growing, growing. And I'll walk with Jesus because we know who he really is, and we love him. Yeah, there's still times where I strain at a gnat when I'm swallowing a camel. I still make bad decisions and beat myself up for doing it. At times, I catch myself worrying about the likelihood of loss. But as I said, the good news is I've actually grown. I've learned more so to acknowledge my faults and seek Jesus for my freedom. Through the tiles and tests, I've learned more and more. Turn to trust him. And will I ever get there fully? As I said, in this lifetime, no. I look at it as I'm on a road to recovery, a recovery that will be finalized one day in the fullness of my redemption. Man, when I can look him face to face and wrap my arms around him, then it'll be over. But I can't enjoy the ride now just knowing that I will one day reach that destination. In the meantime, he knows how to keep me humble. He knows how to keep me looking to him as the only source of my strength. We are all so much healthier when we look to him as the only source of our strength. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. I'm going to finish this up, but I mentioned earlier the story of three men who expressed their desire to follow Jesus. And at the end of that account, Jesus gave them a potting shot discourages all of us from living out of the negative issues of our past. Jesus said, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back, looks back 
is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. We can't go forward in life if at the same time we're always looking back. And I may have mentioned this once before, and I've used this example, but only because it was personal to me. When I was a young boy, we were dairy farmers, and I'd be 12 years old. My summers were spent in the hayfields, and I can remember this landmark day that, that I had with my uncle, Tony. We used to call him Uncle Toe. He placed me on a tractor. The, the hayfield that we were doing is where Bryant University is right now. That was my dad's family farm when I was a little kid, the one I mentioned we lost. And, well, actually, he sold that to Earl Tupper of Tupperware, and who then gave it to the college, and now it's the home of Bryant University. But anyway, that's that was our biggest hayfield. And my uncle took me up there one day. He set me on the tractor and instructed me to rake the hay. You know, the rake was behind the tractor, and he had recently cut the hay, and it was important that the as you rake the hay, that those rows would be straight because he was going to come along. My uncle later, the next day, he was going to come along with the baler and he wanted the rows to be straight when he was baling the hay. And he left me on there alone and said, I'll see you later. I'll be back in a few hours. Just left a 12-year-old kid alone on the... I guess it was time for me to become a man then. I remember the parting shot as he left the field, make sure the rows are straight. You know, that generation confidence building wasn't their big thing. But anyway, so I was really trying. I meticulously moved my way down the field, careful to try to keep every row straight as an arrow. But here's what I did. In pride, I looked back to admire my work, to see how good I was doing. Now, if you picture yourself holding a wheel on a tractor and then turning your head and your shoulders back, what's going to happen to the direction of that tractor? All of a sudden, the tractor's going off course. Once I turned my head, my hands, and the stereo, quite naturally, the whole tractor followed to the right. And what was once straight and narrow became crooked and chaotic. And at that point, the field wasn't going to be fit to be bailed. It was a lesson learned. Do not put your hand to the plow and look back. Folks, we can't live. Don't live out of the fears or rejection or shame or whatever happened to you in the past. Jesus, if you knew who he really is, he will set you free from that and set you on a new course that will be the most exhilarating thing that's ever happened in your life. For the joy that sets before us, let's look ahead with Jesus as he heals our past. No longer any need to look back to what was wounded. With delight, we look forward to what awaits us. Folks, life isn't going to be lived for God's people based on what they fear they may be losing or leaving behind. It's about what they're going to be excited about, where they're going and what they're gaining. The presence of God. Oh, Jesus, bless us, Lord. Bless us with your presence and power. 
Lord, help us to be instruments that could set the captive free. Move in our own lives, Lord, to the very character, the very presence of Jesus comes forth in us and through us. Let us make the introductions to people of who you really are, Lord. I want to just be an instrument, Lord, that sets people free, directs them to you, the author and giver of life. Lord, everybody that might be listening to me right now, Lord, if if they've had issues from their past, I pray right now, Lord, that you would begin to move so powerfully by your spirit and direct them to you, the healer, the restorer, the one who gives living water to those that are thirsty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks.